Welcome back to Do We Like Movies. Uh, I am your host, Angel. And I am your demonic host, Javi. (laughs) 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 And uh, this week, we're actually, we've actually recorded two episodes in a single week. And uh, the purpose of this is I unfortunately will be out of town next week, so I won't be able to uh, post an episode on our normal schedule. I mean, not that we've really adhered to a normal schedule. We have also tried to, uh, we usually try to post by the weekend every week. But, uh, you know, Angel being a dad and me having so much important business to take care of because I'm a big businessman. uh, Yeah, it's kind of hard. Yeah, so uh, this week we are reviewing... Maybe one of the worst sequels in the history of the world. Yeah, this movie... Alright, this week we are doing the 1977 John Borman movie, Exorcist Two: The Heretic. This is the sequel to The Exorcist, which is one of the most famous and infamous horror movies of all time. Uh, my first experience with The Exorcist was I watched it for the very first time when I was 12 years old. And even as an almost teenager, I had to sleep with my parents that night when I watched that movie because it scared the living shit out of me. Oh, God, fucking, like, like hair on your peaches and you're sleeping with your dad. And <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. It was really frightening to me. The novel was written by William Peter Blatty, who uh, he went to Georgetown, and he was more famous for anything for writing comedies. Um, and this was like his first, like, voyage into the realm of horror. <laughs> so it's really interesting that, you know, oh, here, let me try to do a different genre, like, decides to write, like, one of the, what will become one of the scariest movies of all time. And then he also started this tradition of people that are generally, like, very funny humans, and then writing some of the most pants-shittingly terrifying one of the most pantingly like terrifying screenplays ever. He is very much like a proto Jordan Peele in some ways. The other thing about The Exorcist is that it is probably the most you know award worthy horror movie before Silence of the Lambs. Uh, so William Peter Blatty, who wrote the novel, actually wrote the script for this movie as well, and his script won Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, in the Oscars for the year of 1974. Okay, so my experience with this movie, uh, it's actually weird. I think I spent a good 18 years of my life watching bits and pieces, but never the entire movie. Like... I think it, I think I was in college until I seen, I saw the movie in its entirety. Because yeah, I'm a big fucking coward. Like I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna sugarcoat it as much as I, as much as our listeners probably think I'm, like the prototype for all manly men in the history of the world. Uh, that movie scared the shit out of me, and I didn't want to like, I didn't want to poop myself. So I remember like, as a kid, like my parents would watch it, 
or it would be on the TV or something like that, and I would catch glimpses of it, but I was always too afraid until, yeah, until I was an adult, and I'm like, oh, time to see what this is all about. And with good reason, this movie was, is very terrifying, and it's, you know, a hallmark as far as a horror movie goes. It's probably one of the greatest horror movies ever made. Just, I mean, one of the best movies, I think, like, there's a lot of merit in this movie, not just as a horror film, but just as a film in general, whether we're talking about cinematography, the writing, there's a lot to, to really like here. Um, so, you, Angel, you know my parents. They're, they're, they're your aunt and uncle, so <laughs> I would hope you know them. But they, my, like, my parents aren't really big on date nights, right? So whenever I was a kid and they would go out, like, on a date night, it was, like, a big deal for them because they are like, oh, like, my parents were the type to maybe go out alone, just them, like, maybe once every three months, you know? So I remember it was a Saturday. My parents were going to drop me off. They were going to go on a date, and then they were going to pick me up from a friend's house, right? And my parents were super excited. They're like, we're going to go watch a movie. We hadn't watched a movie since we were dating. And it just so happens one of the first movies they saw when they were dating was The Exorcist, which scared the shit out of my mom. But my dad was like, haha, like I'm a big manly dude. And turns out he was like just as much of a chicken as uh, his his baby boy is. <laughs> but um, so they go, they drop me off my friend's house and they go to the movie. And I guess they don't really read the movies, right? Um, and they end up finding The Exorcist. And my dad thought it was, like, a sequel. And he thought it would, at this point, it would have been God. It would have been Exorcist 4, maybe? Exorcist 5, if we're talking about, I don't know, fucking 4. Well, maybe. no, there's there's 4. So there's Exorcist 1 from 73. There's this well, week's Well, no, movie. no, no, like, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out what, like, when it would have been. Like, my parents thought it was a sequel. Well, so it, it, the one thing is they, the the Exorcist was re released to the '90s, like the original film. So after the movie we're talking about this week, like this movie was so toxic that Warner Brothers sold the rights to it because they couldn't see any viable franchise coming out of it anymore. Uh, Morgan Creek Productions buys the rights to it for Exorcist Three, and they co-produce it with Fox. Now, in the late '90s. Be coming up on the 20th anniversary of the film or 25th anniversary. I think it was 25th anniversary because it was the late 90s. Uh, they ended up putting the movie back in theaters again. Warner Brothers did. And they made a fucking boatload of money. Uh, with So it was like a second generation of people discovered that movie when it was in theaters. So if your parents were going in the late 90s, my guess is that they were watching the re-release of the original movie with the additional footage that was put in when they first came out on DVD. I was about to tell this huge story about how my parents thought it was going to be like Exorcist 3 or 4, and it would be, ah, oh, turns out we saw this movie 20 years ago on our date. Remember how we did that? Then we did the same thing? Wow, we're big dumb goofballs. No, no, you fucked up the story. Fuck you. Uh, but yeah, my parents ended up going to watch the movie again, even though they'd seen it like 20 years before. Uh, yeah, that, that's the end of the story. <laughs> okay. So, Exorcist came out, and it was a cultural phenomenon. Um, Warner Brothers had to capitalize on it. Like, they needed to make more money off of this. 
1974, the year right after uh, The Exorcist came out, Godfather 2 comes out. And Godfather 2 is really one of the first sequels, uh, you know, in the history of film. And it's the first movie, I think, to use part two in the title. So, um... When The Godfather 2 comes out, and it's arguably as good as the original, the Warner Brothers kind of wanted to get in on this, and they wanted to put together a sequel for The Exorcist. Now, nobody wanted to be a part of this thing. Like, nobody from the original movie. Linda Blair, uh, you know, and Ellen Burstyn both had back issues from stemming from uh, filming the first movie. Uh, Linda Blair using on a harness that was on one of the beds that was just like violently having her go up and down, like sit up and lay back down in, in, in the bed. Like in one of those, it's just like something in her back, like kind of snapped. Um, the worst they... part about that injury too, is that she kept telling them, stop, stop. And, like, the crew thought she was in character, so they were like, oh, that must mean keep going or go harder. Yeah. And that, like, that, like, seriously injured her, which then led to, like, a fucking chemical dependency for, like, painkillers. Well, the thing, too, is that uh, Ellen Burstyn, like, there's the scene where she gets pulled backwards and falls onto the, and they, and they captured the shot of her falling, and that's the one they use in the movie, is the one of uh-huh. her actually, like, in pain. Um, God. And part of the reason why the original Exorcist is so potent and so terrifying is because that director was a fucking psychopath. Like, William Friedkin did all sorts of things to to um, make you believe in the reality of the film, right? Lots uh, of borderline illegal things. Well, the guy had guns on set. And so that he could get the desired terrified reactions from his actors, like, he would fire off guns... Wouldn't he also play, like, African drum music in between takes to terrify people? Maybe. I, you know, like... Unless I was thinking of another batshit crazy uh, director that would do wild things like that. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, want it to, I don't want this to turn into a review of Exorcist 1. But, you know, it, it was a movie that was so expertly made that obviously that's why it's considered one of the greatest of all time and the scariest movie of all time. But because of the success... So, uh, what's your experience with Exorcist 2, then? So, Exorcist 2, I watched for the first time seven years ago during AMC's Fear Fest uh, while I was sitting at home one day, and I never really got through it. I just saw all sorts of weird shit about... um, There was a priest that was fighting an evil Reagan that wasn't exactly the demon from the original movie. And it's like, what the fuck is this? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. And even, like, the title doesn't make sense to me. Like, I don't understand why the movie is called Exorcist to the Heretic. I guess the reason why it's called the Heretic, and I don't know if it's that we missed this when we watched the movie, I guess Father Marin is facing post uh, posthumous uh, heresy charges. Oh, okay. And that's... That's what forces everything to to start. Like that's what that's the catalyst of the entire movie. I don't know about you, but I did not get that at all. No, like, <laughs> no, but, and and yeah, this movie is so like it, it is so wild that as soon as I knew we were gonna review some shitty sequels, 
you know, I figured something like Jurassic Park 3, yeah, yeah, sure, it, it could be considered a shitty sequel. This is one of the worst movies ever. Like, there was no care in any of this. The screenwriter is a guy who, this was like his first script that he ever wrote. The film was being constantly rewritten in post-production. Uh, the director, like, they're, the pedigree of people in, involved with this movie is is good. Like, John Borman is famous for having directed Deliverance, which is the scariest non... Which is, like, one of the scariest non-horror movies that exists. Um, I know. And... So fucking weird. <laughs> and, what's it called? Uh, Linda Blair, you know, act- they actually got her to come back. They got Max von Cito to come back. In the same year that he does the voice for Star Wars, they get James Earl Jones to come into this movie. And it's just like, it shouldn't be of the terrible quality that it is, but it's like this movie just screams cash grab, right? Like, there's just no way around it. Um, And it feels like the people making this movie had no understanding of what made the first movie so good, so they decided to do the complete opposite everywhere. Um, A movie that was built... And on subtlety and like it was established that it could be realistic and that, you know, it, it was happening in the real world. You know, that's how we got the Exorcist. Exorcist 2 has none of that. No, no. It feels like it could take place in a fucking futuristic hellscape. Like It has the subtlety of a grizzly bear with a chainsaw. <laughs> It has, like, you know, it's about as realistic as, I don't fucking know, Marvel Cinematic Movies. And to give you an idea of how this movie was received when it came out, I wanted to... This was what I was uh, wanting to tell you while we were watching the movie, but I wanted to wait till we were on the podcast to share this with you. Uh, So William Friedkin, the director of The Exorcist, uh, tells a story that is recalled to him by an exec at Warner Brothers. They screened Exorcist 2 at the Chicago Critics Film Festival. And apparently, like, within 10 minutes of the movie starting, an audience member stood up, looked into the crowd, and said, the people who made this piece of shit are in this room. (laughs) It says 10 or 12 other audience members gathered to find the executives. And the executives from Warner Brothers run out of the theater. And they were chased down the street by a group of angry audience members. Are you serious? <laughs> that is the story you... that William Friedkin says. <laughs> I do know that I've read that like when this movie premiered that people were throwing shit at the screen because they hated oh, it so much. And that it was basically like shit. laughed off like in uh in preview screenings. Holy <laughs> shit! Are you serious? I just picture like a bunch of audience members chasing down Warner Brothers executives, Alex Jones style. <laughs> Come here, cowards! Cowards! <laughs> oh god! Apparently, William Blatty 
was trying really hard not to laugh throughout the entire movie when he went to the to to the premiere in seventy. What was this seventy seven? You told me this was bad. You didn't tell me it was an unholy fucking train wreck. <laughs> so the movie doesn't even have. What do you th- what do you think of when you want to hear the sounds of the Exorcist? Just tell me what I'm supposed to think. You think of tubular bells, the theme song to yeah. The Exorcist, and it's only played like once at a very awkward like time, like which is like uh, Chris McNeil like walking down the streets of Georgetown, like that is like you know what I mean. But it is the sound that like just reminds you of The Exorcist and makes you think of it. And this like movie had a score by Ennio Morricone, and for those who don't know who he is, he is uh, he he co-did this um, the score to the thing with John Carpenter, and he also uh, did the score for Hateful Eight uh, by Tarantino, to the point where Hateful Eight actually uses uh, Reagan's theme from this movie uh, in Hateful Eight, right? And mm-hmm. this guy didn't use a single like he didn't create a single version of the score from the original movie. It was just this crazy rock score with, like, a bunch of women, like, uh, howling, I guess. <laughs> um, so fucking weird. It, it's just the, just the trailer itself. Like, I when me and Javi were looking, we're starting to think about watching this movie, I told Javi, I said, you have to watch the trailer for this thing. Because right away from when you watch the trailer, like, you will... It's going to fuck with your brain, and it's going to only start to prepare you for what you're about to see. And not even in a good way. It doesn't mind fuck you and like, oh, wow, that movie was crazy. Like, there's so much cool imagery or, you know, oh, wow, that was so well written. I didn't see any of those twists happening. Like, no, it was like a fever dream. It was like <laughs> someone took a shit ton of peyote fucking... Like, tried to write the script, like, watch The Exorcist, and they're like, alright, my turn. <laughs> it was so bizarre. Like, seriously, if you guys get the chance, go watch the trailer if you haven't seen this movie. Like, and then tell us what you think of the trailer. No, and the other thing this movie does is, so, the title, The Exorcist, really a lot of the first movie was about Jason Miller's character of Damien Karras. And Damien was probably one of the most interesting characters in the entire film and a lot of the movie was about his crisis of faith where he you know he was a psychiatrist and he was a priest and his job was to give other priests like advice and counsel and he was he was saying that it was totally easy for him to do it as a psychiatrist but when people asked him about losing faith he had no answers for them because he like struggled with his own self about it and even at the end of the movie, he's he's the one who drives the demon out, not Marin. Marin gets killed by the demon, and Damien is the one who decides to sacrifice himself uh, to get the demon out of Reagan. Now, this movie retcons all of that because, I mean, in in the way that it does it is that you completely ignore Damien and you never really hear from him at all or like about him is, at all. He is never brought up. Again. No. Aside from mentioning that he... Like, the only way that I remember him being mentioned in this movie is that he was there at The Exorcist. Yeah. Aside from that, nothing. Yeah. Like, this movie tells you... All it tells you is that Marin is the only one who's been fighting Pazuzu. 
and mm-hmm. which is the name of the demon. And he that he has fought this demon several times, right? And it's so again, it just changes everything. And um so the movie actually like tries to play off of the first one in that it deals with another priest who's quote unquote struggling with faith in uh Father Philip Lamont who is the, mm-hmm. I guess, main character of the movie. Now, this guy is like this a church... fucking guy. He is a priest and a church detective, I guess? Because he's so, the one who has to, like, look at what... He's the one who has to look for the fucking journal entries or, you know, flashbacks of Father Marin to find out what he's done with this demon in the past. So he's the globetrotting priest adventurer? Right. He's the and globetrotting archaeologist that goes around trying to, I don't know, like, it totally feels like they try to turn him into, like, one of those pulp, like, pulp comic adventure heroes. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what, it, that was the vibe they were trying to go for, but, you know, he was being, like, a hero for God or something. Like, ah. This guy, I I didn't even know he was struggling with his faith. Honestly, like that never came up to me. <laughs> you want to hear something funny about this? Well, not funny because it's unfortunate, but <laughs> but oh, as God. someone but as someone who is several years sober, I, I just like the thought of this like made me laugh because of the movie that this is. But it says uh, on IMDb. That Linda Blair said Richard Burton started off sober, mm-hmm. <laughs> but during filming at some point, he frequently became drunk in the middle and end of filming. <laughs> Holy shit, are you serious? So this guy like literally falls off the wagon while they're filming this movie. <laughs> that is... Holy shit, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> And he's also, like, considered a, uh, you know, he's considered a great actor. He was the husband of Elizabeth Taylor, and I guess they were going through a divorce at this time. And part of the reason why he even took this role was because he needed money, because he was going through a divorce. Oh, God, boy, he picked the wrong (laughs) So, you know, uh, so Lamont ends up going to find Reagan McNeil because he's aware of the exorcism that took place four years ago in this movie. And oh, hold on, hold on. No, we gotta really. I think we gotta do a deep dive in the beginning, real quick, because that beginning scene in and of itself is pretty fucking bonkers. Okay. So, Phil Lamont is supposed to be like a weird, like he's supposed to be investigating. Well, he investigates the death, uh, the death of Marin, but it's like he's also another church exorcist. So that's why he even gets brought in to investigate Marin's death. Why do we know he's an exorcist? Is we got to see him perform an exorcism? He asked with the giant question mark. So he goes, I guess he's supposed to be in South America and he's trying to like exorcise this young woman, right? And... Like, you, you know, like, a, a lot of people in the local, like, town are trying to help him, and they're, like, holding the girl down while he's doing the prayers, right? And then, like, she shoots, like, straight up and standing, and then, like, knocks over a bunch of candles and emulates herself, like, setting herself on fire. 
And she immediately burns to a crisp all in front of Marin. I mean, Marin, sorry, in front of uh, Father Lamont. And that was it. Like, this scene is just right off the bat. Like, it took me, you know, we watched the movie last night, right? So it took me all of last night and all of today while I was at work. And I've been trying to figure out what the shit is the point of this scene. And I can't tell you anything other than the fact that it's supposed to tell you that he's a shitty exorcist. Like, I wish I could tell you more, but it was just so fucking bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, so that, like, so that's how we're introduced to Father Lamont. Lamont um, goes back to the Vatican, and I guess it's a cardinal. Cardinal, I don't know what his name no, is. No, he has. No I guess name. just he is just. Oh, he's just the, the cardinal. Yeah, yeah. In the credits, he is the cardinal. Oh shit! They couldn't even be bothered with the name. <laughs> well, oh, the funny God. thing about this movie is that okay, um, Louis Fletcher is in this, and this was the year I think the year after she won the Oscar for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson. This was the next movie she did after that. You ever see the fact that Halle Berry like followed up her Oscar with like Catwoman? <laughs> I feel like that's that's what this is for Louise Fletcher. It's following up her Oscar-winning film with, like, a fucking turd bomb. The funny thing is they wanted Ellen Burstyn to come back to this movie to play Chris McNeil. She did not want to come back for obvious reasons, um, and they couldn't convince her to do it. They brought Louise Fletcher on board initially to play Reagan's mother, because yep. they thought that she looked enough like Ellen Burson to do it. Now, it isn't until, I guess, they're close to filming the movie that they that they just went... The story undergoes a fuck ton of changes, and she is written to be a completely new character named uh, Dr. Jean Tuscan, who is, I guess, Reagan's psychiatrist? Who... We'll go into we'll Tuscan, like... Pretty and deep, like in this movie or in this movie, because she's uh, yeah, we don't know what she is exactly. <laughs> other she than is a doctor and someone who puts Reagan in great danger. She is a shitty doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, in their first scene together, uh, we see whatever the fuck her office is. Like it looks like something out of the Jetsons. Uh, there where they're sliding like automatic doors like everywhere and instead of walls there's just like glass walls everywhere right like it looks like it looks like mib headquarters or something i think you you hit the nail on the head when you said it reminded you of the lab from uh from westworld yeah it very it very much looks like that where it's like every room like every patient's room is like a weird like octo like octagonal octagon shaped room yeah made just of glass and that's like how all these rooms are and it looks like something that shouldn't be around in the 70s mm-hmm. like it looks way futuristic so it looks like what do- somebody in the 70s thought the future would look like yeah that's a good way of putting it so you're right away you're like okay so we went from a movie that was uh, I wouldn't say Exorcist One was like a single location film, right? No, um, no, but, but it was mo- realistic. Like there was a lot of great realism in that movie. That this movie is right away starting to strip away from itself. 
Is this where uh, they start dealing with the stupid synchronizer? Yep, this is it. So remember <laughs> last week when we talked about like the moment in the sequel when you know that they're about to jump the shark and the logic that existed in the initial film won't exist uh, in this film at all? Like the prison scene yeah. from next Friday where they show Debo escaping? Now, in this mm-hmm. movie, the scene that just telegraphs to you that this is not real and this is all bullshit is the scene where reagan's psychiatrist has her sit down and they both have to stare into a strobing light that pulses really hard and starts to slow down and they have to try to match their tones and the i guess the idea is that it's gonna allow them to read each other's minds not to mention for some reason the person that's in a trance has to be the person to like set up the other person right so it's reagan and dr dr tuscan and first tuscan makes uh reagan go into that weird like into that weird uh into that weird trance Right, and let and before we even get there, like in in somewhere in this, Tuscan is trying to convince Reagan to do it, and she doesn't want to do it. And it isn't until uh, Father Lamont shows up, where he's like wanting to question Reagan, because you know in the in the first movie at the end, Reagan mentioned like Reagan's mother mentions to Father Dyer, who's who she was talking to at the end of the movie, that Reagan doesn't remember anything about the possession or the exorcism. That's and right. this movie, yeah. she kind of tries to play that hand as well, where she like you know tries to act like she has no idea what happened in the house in Georgetown. Um, but Father, as soon as she sees a priest, it's like something triggers in her head. So this movie is implying now that the demon was never lifted from her after the first movie, and that it's in fact just hiding deeper and deeper in her subconscious. Pretty much, once the demon's in, it's in for life. Like, which I think I just I think I just quoted N.W.O. Wolfpack. <laughs> like, so so they go into synchronizing, and the way it works is okay. Let's 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 sample this right. Let's sample I'm this right now, Javi. So yeah. we, if we're both sitting here, imagine we have a pulsing machine going, and it starts to slow down. And as we're doing that, I'm talking to you right now in this tone, and I'm asking you to come down with me. Come down with me. Come and join me. I'm getting Ew. slower. Ew, that's, that's so creepy. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it. You know what? I feel like George. It. It's like for modern audiences, it's how they hypnotize the main character and get out. Right? Yeah. Like you just hear like a, a hypnotic tone, and they're starting to talk slower and slower and lower, and that's supposed to like get him into the sunken place. So this is kind of like that. Um. And it doesn't, so it doesn't work when Tuscan and Reagan, I mean, it, it does work, but it looks like Tuscan is immediately having some sort of heart attack. Yeah, first of all, yeah, it, one, it's stupid at the fact that uh, Reagan <laughs> is the one that needs to now bring Tuscan down. So, two, 
you know, people start sh- you know, it shakes Reagan up, and she wakes up from her, her trance, and she sees Tuscan almost dying, and then, you know, people don't know what to do, and for some reason, Father Lamont does, even though he's never seen this machine or seen this, in, like, work in person before, but someone's like, oh my god, what happened to her? And then Dr. Lamont says, I know where she is, and he, like, rips. You mean Father Lamont? You just called him Wait, Doctor. Doctor Father. Uh, Detective Lamont? I don't know what the <laughs> fuck he is anymore, dude. He's like seven different things in this movie. Detective Doctor. Just keep adding more like <laughs> more titles to the beginning of his name. Constable yeah, Lamont. He like rips Reagan's uh like headband off that's like connecting her brain to to Dr. Tuskins. Not knowing if it, that's gonna like kill her or fry her brain or anything. Like, you know, I'm I'm not gonna pretend like I'm a uh, I'm a synchronizer expert, but something tells me you're not supposed to rip off the one thing that's connecting two brains together. Like it doesn't seem like a good idea. Mm. And then you're definitely not supposed to put it back on and jump right into this person's like traumatized <laughs> brain. So he has this weird fucking like goes into her dream a la fucking Inception. Where... Except like a terrible version of it. Oh God, it was a terrible version. So of it. okay, so this part, they go into one of the scenes that was not shown in The Exorcist, right? One of the neat things about the movie and the novel itself, specifically the movie, I guess, is that things happen in the movie that you don't see on screen, but it's like it's just the story is told in such a way that it's what makes it all the more horrifying. Like yep. the most terrifying death in the exorcist is never shown on screen. And that's the mm-hmm. death of the director, uh, Burke Dennings. So essentially what happens is Sharon, the assistant of Chris McNeil goes to get medicine for Reagan. And the only person that's in the house with her is a the director. Everyone else is gone and the director apparently like goes up to check on Reagan in her room and they don't show you any of this like you have no idea he was even there the scene starts with um Chris talking to a psych talking to one of the doctors right where she tells him about um about her uh you know like where he tells her maybe uh, that she's taking drugs and all that kind of stuff right and when they when he's like says that to her, she just drives home very angrily. And as she's driving home, there's a crowd of people that are standing by the steps that are outside their home in Georgetown. And when she goes and she like pays no attention to it. When she goes inside, she's wondering where everyone is and the house is empty. You know, and she goes out up to Reagan's room and the window's wide open and it's cold. And she closes it and comes back downstairs. And she sees Sharon come in. And she tells Sharon what happened. And Sharon tells her that, you know, that, oh, well, Burke was here with her. And, like, but he's nowhere to be found. And as they're starting to argue with each other about why she left Reagan alone with Burke, you know, one of Chris's, uh, I, I guess, like, associates shows up at the door and tells him that he just fell out the window onto the streets to like you know off down the steps onto the street 
and mm-hmm. you it gets described to you later by the detective Kinderman, where he talks about how the guy's head was like you know turned backwards and all that kind of stuff. So so it later when you see Reagan's head turns backwards, it's really her admitting that she killed him. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying is that this is that the original movie had such a good job of storytelling that it told you things without having to tell you things with words. Mm-hmm. Um, like you knew it was going down, like just because of subtext and like, and the scene a... and the scene specifically that we're taught that we're about to talk about right now, which is the death of uh, Father Marin, is something that isn't shown in the movie. Damien goes out and he walks to the living room. To where Neil, to where to where Chris McNeil is, and she t- and she like looks at Damien and she says, "Is my daughter gonna die?" And like you know, like right when she was about to cry, and he turns around and he says, "No." And that's when he goes upstairs and sees Marin just dead there, right? Like yeah, he's had heart right. problems the entire the entire movie because he's been taking the pills from you know even from the beginning where you saw him in Iraq, and she just he just goes up there and sees him dead. And Reagan laughing on the bed, and that's when, like, you know, the climax of the movie happens. This movie is now trying to tell you that what, in fact, happened in this room is that Pazuzu basically diddles (laughs) Father Marin's heart until he dies. And And we're not saying, like, he diddled his heart as a joke. No, for some fucking reason the director superimposes like the scene that took pl- that supposedly took place in exorcist one over the scene that's taking place in exorcist two so there's like ghostly outlines that all match up where it turns out the person like the reason why uh Tuscan looks like she's having a heart attack is because she's actually in the memory as Marin having her heart grabbed by Pazuzu. And I don't mean like, oh, it's just like her like hand on her chest. No, like the hand is literally inside her chest, squeezing her heart and like finger banging it. <laughs> like to no end. <laughs> And then they superimpose, like, Demon Reagan over, you know, 17-year-old Reagan. So which, Linda I, Blair, which Linda Blair just agreed to come back as long as they did not put her in makeup like they did in the first movie. So in this movie, they use a double that does all the possessed Reagan scenes. Uh, the makeup is so bad compared to the original movie. And the voice that they pick for the demon is bad as well and it's also like just noticeably a female voice now one of the interesting things about the original movie is that the voice was done by an actress named mercedes mccambridge and part of why the director william friedkin chose her is because he wanted someone that had a neutral that a gender neutral voice he didn't want it to sound too female and he didn't want it to sound too male and this woman just had the ability of making all these crazy sounds with her voice and changing the octaves of her voice and that's part of why it's such a terrifying performance this one is it's like Reagan has a witch voice and that is like where and that is the voice that she's going to have as evil Reagan the entire movie. So they're when like, they're really? super so when they're superimposing demon Reagan onto good Reagan <laughs> it clearly is not her. So it just looks really bizarre as they're doing it. Looks, it looks 
nothing like her. It was so fun. Like, you know someone thought that was a good idea, too. Someone really thought this is going to be a very artsy and, like, cutting-edge shot. And it was fucking garbage. It looked like some shit you would see on TV. Like, it was bad. And Like, because the you other... can't make out what's actually happening, you know? Like, it was so... I, I hated it. Yeah. It was it was awful, and then right after that, you start getting these crazy flashes of something that you'll see throughout the rest of the movie, and that is like going, and that is locust, like a fucking digital or puppet locust, or just bizarre special effects locust. Oh no, dude, that's a puppet. I think I'm pretty sure that was a puppet locust. Yeah. <laughs> like it is just like flapping its wings. And I guess the priest is, like, somehow, like, flying through Africa with this inside the stream. <laughs> and that's where you see, like, a flashback of Father Marin, you know, performing an exorcism on a young boy who they refer to as Kukumo. And <laughs> it's just so weird because now you're finding out, like, later in the movie you find out that he developed special powers to fight the demon. And, like, that Pazuzu now, and the demon, the form that it chooses to take is that of a swarm of locusts. Because he's the demon of the wind? Yeah. <laughs> he cares. So, it, I don't know, like... It feels like they try to establish a lot of... Mythology. Yeah, they try to establish a lot of mythology, but you're not really sure from what. You know, like, I guess... Right, like, none of it None of it feels like it comes from the same, you know, just brain, like, you know, like brain idea that created the first movie. Like, Pazuzu's supposed to be a Syrian, right? I guess, like... Supposed to be like going into Egypt and Libya, so oh, that's the thing. Like they don't really like they try to introduce all this fucking mythology, but I'm like, where I don't know anything about it. You're not giving me any backstory about this mythology. Well, the other just... problem too is that this movie, like, is the complete antithesis of the original. In that the original movie, all the places felt real. It was shot yes. on location in Georgetown. It was like the steps are actual steps in Georgetown that are infamous now because of this movie. The house was in Georgetown. Like, and this movie, part of why it was at the, at the time of its release, the most expensive movie ever made, was because <laughs> they were not allowed to film at any of the locations that they did the original movie. <laughs> so they had to recreate everything on sets. And they also had to create Africa on sets. Now, I read a review yeah. on this movie that really made me crack up because I, I, I totally thought about it when I read it. And, and that's that the Africa in this movie looks like fucking Tatooine from Star Wars. I remember I told you that. Yeah. Remember I said the same fucking thing that, it, like, for some fucking reason, everything was like... It wasn't even that it was, like, clay huts or anything like that. It looked like impossible geometry to make. It's, <laughs> like it, it's just straight up, like... And, and they're not good sets, either. They are bad no. sets. 
Like, you get no sort of skyline. You get no sort of, like... You know, they, they you can't even fucking green screen anything at this point. No, <laughs> like, and the only place that they probably shot on location was the penthouse in New York that yeah. Reagan is living in. Like, that's the it's only not- place that feels like it's actually taking place somewhere in the real world. Everything else, just like you said, feels like it's either a set or it's the Warner Brothers back a lot. Like you pointed out when they were trying to walk down the street into uh, into the house at Georgetown. Like, and it's so fucking bizarre, dude. Like, I was even surprised that later in the movie there's this scene they're walking on the street in New York. I was surprised they even did that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and the thing, too, is, like, it, what it reminds me of, the sets of Georgetown, is fucking New York from Eyes Wide Shut by Stanley Kubrick. Because mm-hmm. he had to shoot that entire thing in London on a, on a studio back lot. And, mm-hmm. they would, and they would basically just rearrange the blocks... So it's supposed to take place in New York, but you're obviously walking by a lot of the same buildings that are on the same sets, and that was kind of like, I guess, intentional by Kubrick to give you some sort of dream logic. This movie just, you know, it does all of that stuff, and you're just like, wow, we are so far away from where we started now. Oh, it gets worse, buddy. So... Father Lamont goes to Africa to try to find Kokumo to find out why Kokumo is able to fight off Pazuzu and why he was (laughs) able to expel the demon, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a shit ton of weird fever dreams and fucking, fucking, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, hallucinations in this scene while he's in Africa. Mm -hmm. Um... But he ends up going back to where Marin went to go get the the exorcism for Kokumo done. And he mentions of how he asked Pazuzu to help him find Kokumo. So he's been tainted. Yeah. He's basically been brushed by the wings of Pazuzu. So, (laughs) meanwhile, across the globe in New York... Reagan is performing in a tap dance show. Oh, by the way, this movie, um, Linda Blair was 17 when this movie came out. And the director, I guess, made some sort of conscious choice to have her be way over-sexualized in this movie. It is very uncomfortable (laughs) to watch the way that they present her, and especially later in the movie, uh, there's going to be a very uncomfortable scene that takes place. Yeah, there's one scene later on that's going to make you... It made me lose my shit when we watched it. <laughs> so there's this... Yeah, there's this scene across the globe while Lamont is pissing off villagers in Africa. We got... Bleh, I don't know why I like blanked on her name. We have Reagan in a weird tap dance show because she does tap. You know, I, I, I forgot. I didn't know that was a thing. I think it's only mentioned once in the beginning and then here and then never brought up again. Right. So, because they, because her and Father Lamont synchronize minds... Oh, yeah. They basically become E.T. and Elliot in this movie. So, as she's in the middle of her tap dance performance, Lamont's getting attacked, and people start stoning him. They start throwing rocks at him. And, Every this, is, time. this is the classroom scene in E.T. Where, like, everything that E.T. is watching on TV, Elliot is performing. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like the inverse of that. 
the best part is that as Lamont's getting pelted with rocks, he doesn't react. Like, he, nothing happens to him. He even gets into a car. <laughs> and at this point, what's her name? Oh, Reagan is the one taking, like, all the pain. Yeah. She's, the, like, in the middle of her performance, she starts, like, it looks like she's being punched, like, getting the shit kicked out of her until she, like, falls into the crowd. Which it looks like, by the way, she's performing at a community center. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> With how close the crowd is to the performers. But she, like, eats shit and goes diving off when, pe- like, she's having this crazy seizure. Meanwhile, Lamont's already driving away. So, as it turns out, it is later revealed in the movie that, <laughs> that Reagan has psychic powers and that the, the synchronizer, like, like it, like it brought out those her psychic abilities, and now she can go into people's minds. And this is all a part of a higher consciousness that all humans are supposed to develop psychic abilities in the future. Do you remember any of this being brought up in the movie? Yeah, I do. I do, and I remember it being bullshit when I was watching it in the movie. This um, is such bullshit! So what this movie basically tells you is that Reagan is apparently a healer child. And the way that it demonstrates it is, she's, uh, in the beginning, when she first meets Father Lamont, she paints, like, she draws a picture of him with flames in the back. And later, like, Dr. Tuscan sees exactly what was in her drawing uh, appear when he has flames behind him uh, in the building that they're all in, in. And... After that, she also goes to talk to a girl who's, you know, who's autistic. And this movie is, I, I, I'm not sure how well it portrayed autism. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is definitely what somebody in 1977 thought autism looked like. I don't know how well they portrayed any mental problems. <laughs> but the autism... <laughs> Whether it's po- a post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. it's just like well, any any mental health issues. So the autistic girl is played by Dana Plato, who played the sister on Different Strokes, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I thought just was something interesting because I you know I watch a lot of Nick at Night, so I recognized her. But um, so in the beginning of the movie, she's not able to talk at all. And there's a scene where she and Reagan are together in one of those glass rooms, and Reagan starts talking to her, and she just starts talking back, and then all of a sudden she can just talk all the time now, which yep. like reminded me of Halloween Five, where uh, Michael Myers' niece is supposed to be like a mute <laughs> yep. for the and entire sudden... movie, and then all of a sudden like she says a couple words, and they basically drop the subplot of her being mute for the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> So that that is like the story. That is the, that is what's supposed to show you that Reagan is just like some sort of like you know healer child that's supposed to take care of a lot of people in the world. So and then and this movie, pretty... it's bizarre because people can just fly back and forth between Africa and the U.S. like it's nothing. Yeah, it like it's not a fucking like almost twenty hour flight. <laughs> like. like... It doesn't take, like, you're, cl- you're crossing several time zones and it's not exhausting as all shit. Also, but Reagan also- is living with uh, Chris's assistant from the first movie, Sharon, who, you know, the actress Kitty Wynn was one of the few actresses who came back from the first movie along with Linda Blair. Um, 
And it doesn't make any sense to me because I'd never got the impression that she was a caretaker. Like in the first, in the novel, like she is Chris's assistant. And they mm-hmm. tell you that Chris is off on location shooting a movie throughout the entire movie. And nobody bothers to call her and tell her what's happening with her daughter. Um, and no one will bother to tell her when she comes back from filming that movie why Reagan is gone. <laughs> like doc- Reagan's doctor doesn't once think it's a good idea to call her mom and be like, yo, come get your daughter, bruh. Like... <laughs> This whole movie is so fucking weird. Like, like it's written without any understanding of how humans interact. And oh god, yeah. So Lamont comes back from Africa. And oh no 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 no! Do not skip the scene where he finally meets Kokumo. Oh. <laughs> okay, so don't you dare disrespect Mr. James Earl Jones. Uh, like okay, that. so to get to Kakumo, you have to climb a mountain in like in a bizarre way where it looks like something out of a fucking 127 hour spoof. It's like <laughs> a sheer cliff wall, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> and the <laughs> funny part is that like as they showed the flashback initially of like Marin making that climb <laughs> they saw a guy like stumble and fall and his fall just looked hilarious his fall literally looks like a guy pretending to fall standing up <laughs> like it looks so stupid and then he pinballs in between like the whole or in between the walls it just looks so bizarre so so, so Lamont has to climb up this cliff to get to Kakumo and when he finally does, he goes inside what looks like the entrance of a hut, and he <laughs> sees over the spikes and water that are in front of him that in some sort of throne moat, <laughs> James Earl Jones is sitting there with a fucking leopard head hat on. No, that's a locust. Oh, oh shit, a locust, sorry. It's a locust helmet. He's a giant fucking locust. I don't know what the fuck this is supposed to be, ceremonial garb or something, but he's like a giant guy locust, a giant, like, locust man. It's so fucking weird. (laughs) So, you know, he, to get to Kakumo, he has to step over the water, because that's what Kakumo dares him to do. And he, like, stepped in, and they show a spike go right through his foot. And then all of a sudden, like by on a snap of a finger, they're instantly transported into a laboratory. And he's like, he he's picking himself off the ground, implying that he'd been lying down, like in front of this laboratory for God knows how long. And then Kokumo comes out and introduces himself, and it turns out Kokumo's actually a, a, a what's it called? Scientist, yeah. I was about to say laboratory guy. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like, I, this part feels like something is missing. 
Like it feels like a reel of film is missing in this scene because it, the it, the cut is just so instantaneous. It's so weird. And the funny thing like, about this movie is that it was received so poorly in theaters when it came out that the director John Borman actually pulled the movie from theaters and was cutting it while it was in wide release. So the original version of the movie screened may not even really exist anymore because it was cut after it already came out in theaters. Really? Yeah. Kokumo is talking to Lamont, and he's telling him how he's studying locusts, right? To be able to prevent locusts from destroying crops in Africa, right? Like, it's... I don't know, I'm trying to find if there's anything like important about that. But the only way that he takes away... Or the only thing that Lamont takes away from this entire encounter, which, by the way, Kokumo doesn't remember his exorcism or his uh, possession either. Much like Reagan. Reagan Mm -hmm. Much like Reagan. But for some reason, he triggers in Lamont this idea that the only way to beat Pazuzu, whom he doesn't believe in, is to rip his heart out. Yeah. So Lamont is now armed with the knowledge of how to beat uh, Pazuzu, which honestly, that's not very a very like that's kind of, that was kind of a no brainer. Like I could have told you that. Yeah, I could have saved you all that time going to Africa. <laughs> oh, and God. so so then he has a vision as well. So then he has a vision of Father Marin, who's telling him that Lamont needs to watch over Reagan. <laughs> And protect her because she's a healer. So Lamont basically kidnaps Reagan, and yeah. and they yeah, he does. and they go to a hotel where Reagan has stolen the synchronizer from her, from her therapist, and they both have to synchronize themselves again. To find the rest of the vision that uh, Marin had, right? And right after that, I guess the same thing happens as what happened earlier, because Lamont stays like hypnotized, and yep. he starts like walking like a zombie from fucking wherever they are in New York all the way to Georgetown, <laughs> and Tuscan and Sharon. You know, who's been a, a real bitch this entire movie, who seems like she hates Reagan now. Um, she, yeah, first of all, that's a, fl- a flipped switch. Like, that was all of us. Like, that was very sudden that. She, like, what's her name? Sharon? Yeah. Yeah, it's sudden how mu- how quickly, like, Sharon goes to hating Reagan. Like, for no reason at all, either. Right. Like, in the original novel, like, she, she has issues with Reagan because Reagan, like, defecates and throws up all the time and that like you know the smell of reagan is just stuck on her like all the time when she goes home so she is like in the novel there is like tension between reagan and sharon but in this movie they just like again like you said it's like a flip switch where she like all of a sudden hates her and they all everyone needs to go back to georgetown i put that in quotations where the house (laughs) is because in the house that is where Pazuzu is going to be. And in this movie, Pazuzu can take a human form and they give you no explanation for it. Like, Pazuzu just becomes into existence. And it's like, the entire point of The Exorcist was that Pazuzu needed a human host. 
Pazuzu never at one point was ever bound to a location. So it's like, why go back to Georgetown? There is literally nothing in Georgetown for Pazuzu anymore. If the whole thing is that he wants Reagan, he has Reagan. He never left Reagan. Right. And the trip to Georgetown is pretty funny, too, because Reagan and Lamont are, are like riding in a train, and it's almost like a weekend at Bernie's thing where she has to try to convince the train conductor <laughs> that they have tickets. And at that very same moment, Sharon and Tuscan somehow get airplane flights to Georgetown. And, <laughs> and, and uh, Father Lamont's like psychic powers like allow him to almost destroy the airplane that, that Tuscan and Sharon are riding in. <laughs> he shakes the airplane. Mind you... Everywhere Tuscan and Sharon go, there's an accident. And because Tuscan yeah. is a doctor, she keeps getting out and says, I have to do my duty. I have to help these people. So even though they're on a time crunch, she feels the need that she has to help everybody. And she does this twice. And you're just like, why? You were talking about how you have to save Reagan because Reagan is in grave danger. <laughs> Oh, my God. So everyone arrives at the house of Georgetown, finally, because the taxi driver fucking loses his goddamn mind, or, like, Locust Swarm, or whatever the fuck. I can't... This is the part of the movie where I can't even remember what the hell happened. The Locusts... I think it was the, the Locusts were attacking at the house, and then suddenly a, a swarm of them, like, hit the car. So the and... car crashes into the house at Georgetown. So it breaks the... So he starts, like, spinning out. Even He's spinning out, but still moving forward. <laughs> because everything is done in rear projection. They're not on location so, at all. Oh, no, not at all. But so that... The way it's going, though, it's because where he's... Supposedly where he's driving isn't close to the house. He's, like, down the street, right? Yeah. When his window breaks. <laughs> so it looks very clear that at some point he loses control of the car, and the car starts spinning out. And he punches the fucking windshield out so that he can <laughs> see. Because <laughs> yeah. he has super strength. Meanwhile, upstairs in the house at Georgetown... <laughs> Evil Reagan goes from looking like the demon in the first movie to becoming a fucking succubus version of Reagan that's trying to seduce the priest, which the priest, like... Which uh, works! Yeah, because eventually, works! like, he climbs on top of her and starts, like, dry-humping and kissing her. <laughs> which, mind you, this is played by 17-year-old fucking Linda Blair! <laughs> So a grown-ass fucking Richard Burton is on top of Linda Blair. It's funny, too, because I, I guarantee you that the people listening to this episode who have not seen this movie will want to see this movie after this because it's just, oh. it's so bizarre. It makes no sense. And This so th movie falls off the rails three times. Yeah. Two of which feel are in the very ending. Right, like the fucking ending of this movie, the last half hour makes absolutely no goddamn sense. Like it's in any nothing. sense of any world that exists at all. Because it's locusts come nothing. in and break oh. through, the house completely gets destroyed in a way that Javi, Javi and I thought that it was gonna like get sucked into another dimension a la Poltergeist at the end. We were expecting a Poltergeist ending here. And we kind of get it! <laughs> yeah, the house is practically <laughs> destroyed 
when everything is set on because Sharon sets herself on fire after they crash into the house when she gets out because apparently busting a light on the car while they're while you're standing in gasoline will cause a giant fire to erupt behind you a la the exorcism from the beginning of this movie cuz i guess Sharon was possessed Right, like I guess but she was, was also brushed by the wings at some point that we have no idea when that happened. So it just ha- so anyone can get possessed at any point, mind you. In the first movie, The Exorcist, the only way Reagan, the only reason Reagan was possessed was because she played with a Ouija board. Oh, we are so far removed from anything that had to do with that movie. <laughs> None of that exists anymore. No, this Ugh. movie in this movie nothing like that exists. And <laughs> at the end of the movie when the house is fully destroyed, um Lamont like grabs Succubus Reagan <laughs> and pulls her heart out of her chest. I told Angel that when I thought they said you got to rip the heart out, I thought dumbass me apparently (laughs) I thought that they were trying to go for subtlety and trying to be like to rip the heart out of the demon you have to overcome your own fears or you have to overcome your trauma or you have to let your uh, your past pain go and you can move on right no that's not what rip the heart out of them meant it literally meant rip her heart out (laughs) Which Lamont does a la fucking fatality style. <laughs> he just fucking Kali Ma's this bitch. And then like the entire house just tears apart. Oh god. So after that, Reagan basically like makes the locusts disappear and they all turn into fucking grasshoppers and like, you know, like they just disappear, right? Yep. And after all of this happens, <laughs> Sharon, who was on fire, mind you, is somehow still alive. <laughs> oh my god. And she is looking at Reagan from across the street. <laughs> and Reagan has to come up to her and like give the worst crying performance I have ever seen in a movie before <laughs> before Sharon can basically give her like McBain death scene <laughs> yeah uh, just like her head just falls to the side just uh, <laughs> dead the only thing that would have been worse if she goes dead right after <laughs> yeah <laughs> car crashes into the side uh, or car crashes into the entrance gate for the house no neighbors come out nope because they don't exist. Like there's Sharon Those are very Sharon's clearly on, not real buildings. Sharon's on fire. No neighbors come out. Nope. The house comes down. No neighbors come out. Nope. Even though even though if you're going by the logic of the original movie, like everyone was on the street when Karis flies out the window at the end of Exorcist One. Finally the neighbors do come out when all our heroes, when uh, when uh, Pazuzu's finally dead and our heroes are triumphant over the demon and Sharon dies. So the police sirens are off in the distance and Tuscan says, go, you can't stay here. I'll explain everything. 
<laughs> to which they disappear like forever. Like this guy has kidnapped Reagan forever, and you're led to they, believe that they're just gonna have adventures together forever. They run through the rubble onto like through the back of the house of Georgetown. If you remember the the layout of the house in the street, the only way to get anywhere is through the stairs that, uh, what's his name? Father, uh, Karis, Karen, Mm -hmm. Karis Mm -hmm. go, you know, goes and kills himself on to be able to rid of Pazuzu from Reagan the first time. So where are they going? (laughs) (laughs) They're just going to go run and be like, Oh shit. We have to go down the stairs or do they just run into the void and never heard from again? I guess they're never heard from again because the movie ends with the pulsing sound of the synchronizer and then you get credits. It was all in their head the whole time. (laughs) So this, like, you know, the ending is just as goddamn ridiculous as the rest of everything that we watched. I have to ask the question. No, you don't. You don't have to because I think it's pretty fucking obvious that we don't like this movie. This movie is fucking garbage. Unlike The Room, which I thought was going to be the worst movie we ever reviewed, at least it has the redeeming quality that, you know, Tommy Wiseau now is like, oh, I made a funny movie, let us laugh. This one, it, it was meant to be serious the entire time. At the very least, at the very least, with a movie like The Room, in hindsight, we would be like, "Oh, this movie was a fucking train wreck," but it's hilarious. And now everyone involved in it is st- like still making money now, like just making a shit zillion dollars. This movie was a fucking unholy fucking train wreck. And oh my god, am I like there is no better comeuppance that I can think of than a bunch of angry audience members chasing those motherfuckers down the street. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I wish, I swear to God, if I had a time machine, the first thing I would do is go down back to the fucking premiere of this movie so I could join that angry mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Javi, do you yes. like Exorcist 2, The Heretic? Fuck no, I don't like this movie! The Heretic was garbage! This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I have no idea where, where and how something could go so wrong so quickly like this series immediately goes to batman and robin (laughs) and immediately jumps to spider-man 3 like this is where all the worst sequels that you could have ever imagined like we are in that territory now this is a movie that is never referenced again in any future exorcist sequel or the television series and there's nothing worth mentioning in this movie. Is of any, like, merit. That you know? said, I am gonna say I probably liked this movie better than I liked The Room. Oh, we are going to fight. I'm gonna fucking chase you down the street. <laughs> this was, we laughed when we watched The Room, and there was parts of it that were absolutely hilarious. I don't think our conversation on The Room (laughs) was as good as our conversation is on this movie because the movie, like, there was just multiple moments in the movie where both of us just looked at each other and said, holy fucking shit, I can't believe I'm watching what I'm watching right now. This movie is so bad it's good. No, it's not! This movie is so bad it's good. It is. No, okay? Fuck off. No, no, no! 
No, fuck you! Right? No, no, fuck you even oh, harder fuck you. because this fuck. movie is no, absolutely no, no, no. better than the don't room. Bite my fucking ass! You're lying. You are, you are fucking full of horseshit if you think this movie's better than the room as far as terrible movies go. Because this, we are in fucking like the kingdom of shit ass movies, and this is the king of shit ass movies. All right. <laughs> This movie murdered a hundred other shit-ass movies to be the king of this fucking garbage land. Spinosaurus of the Exorcist series. Don't you dare fucking say anything about the Spinosaurus. <laughs> that said, oh. I'll go through some factoids on this movie, thanks to IMDb. Uh, the original cut of this was three hours long. Oh my fucking god. <laughs> I barely made it through two. <laughs> I would have shot myself at the end. Of- uh, Linda Blair considers it one of the biggest disappointments of her career. Although often regarded as not only the worst film in the series, but also one of the worst sequels ever made and one of the worst movies ever made in general over the years, it has developed a cult following among fans of John Borman. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking assholes need to shut the fuck up. I want to know who these cult fans are so I can track them all down and punch them in the face. Well, one of the people who actually enjoys this movie is Martin Scorsese. So, checkmate, suck my dick, fuck you, good night. I'm going to start Googling Martin Scorsese's address so I can go kick his ass. (laughs) And I'm just going to fucking create a list of all these people just like Jay and Silent Bob. I'm going to beat the shit out of them. You want to hear the what he was quoted as saying about this movie? Wait, this is during the 70s. This is when Scorsese was on an ass ton of cocaine. <laughs> Alright, so Scorsese says, This picture asks, Does great goodness bring upon itself great evil? This goes back to the book of Job. It's God testing the good. In this sense, Reagan is a modern day saint like Ingrid Bergman in Europe 51, and in a way, like Charlie in Mean Streets. I like the first Exorcist because of the Catholic guilt I have, and because it scared the hell out of me, but the heretic surpasses it. Maybe Borman failed to execute the material, but the movie deserved much better than it got. So the next time you're watching Goodfellas of the Departed, just remember that the genius that made this movie thinks Exorcist to the Heretic is awesome. I'm going to murder Martin Scorsese and then myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. I don't actually mean that. But I am going to go fight Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode. This one is likely going to be shorter than a lot of our other episodes were. Uh, mostly because this movie is just... There's not a lot... like You can't really talk about it narratively scene by scene because it just it, it has such a bizarre dreamlike quality about it that we could never go through it scene by scene like that. So we'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode. Again, we would love to thank our fans who are downloading these uh, these episodes in in awesome numbers. Um, please continue to uh, to interact with us on social media. Uh, send in uh, you know your requests either to our DMs in our Instagram page or in our email, which is uh, do we like movies pod at gmail dot com. Um, Continue to leave us reviews on whatever platform you're able to do so. 
on and make sure that you can leave us reviews and ratings on the Apple Podcast section. You know, I look forward to meeting up with you guys again next week when I am back in town and we review a movie that we're not going to reveal what it is yet. So this is Angel yep. saying uh, next till next time. And this is Javi saying bye, turds. <laughs>